O'Neill, who hasn't been on in a hot minute, and everybody knows him, so I'm not going to introduce him. And our new friend, Aga, who I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, A-G-H-A, who is uh, 10 hours ahead of us, or 12, no, 10 hours ahead of us, who's in uh, Balochistan. David, could you kind of spearhead this conversation? Because I feel like you and Aga are the masters of this, and I am uh, in the passenger seat. Yeah, so there's been this kind of global trend lately of uh, governments around the world that have been target of elite capture by foreign interests and powers, mainly Belt and Road in China, ourselves included, um, that are selling out their own people and earning the resentment of uh, their own people by pursuing very cynical counterinsurgency uh, strategies against their own people. And Balochistan is one case of this, where there have been many militant groups in the past there that have essentially been uh, encouraged um, by these kinds of activities. And so uh, we have Aga here, and uh, I'm very interested to hear uh, his opinions on this, uh, because he's one of the people I saw commenting about this, uh, of apparently Pakistani officers using the term culling uh, in terms of uh, conducting counterinsurgency. I can only uh, help but think that that's how the FBI would uh, like to uh, uh, use those kinds of terms with us these days. <laughs> Probably. Aga, what are, your, what are your thoughts or comments on all of this? Uh, Tommy and David, the first point is that uh, I spent almost... Uh, my entire uh, childhood in uh, Balochistan and uh, studied there. And uh, till to date, I've been traveling extensively in Balochistan. <clears throat> and I've been very closely associated with various uh, personalities who are very active in the Balochistan uh, issue and the politics. Plus, I have... Uh, very good access to the military side. And uh, I, since I served in the army uh, from 1981 to 1994, March, so I have good contacts, I have maintained them. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that the Balochistan insurgency or uh, the movement for secession or whatever you want to call it, is indigenous. It is not uh, foreign-inspired as the uh, state propaganda being heard in Pakistan states. It is a very, very indigenous affair. And certainly I can say with the great conviction that it is not foreign-inspired. The movement is indigenous. Maybe there are some uh, foreign parties interested in uh, helping the Baloch. And plus, uh, we have to note that the Baloch, since like, you know, like Ireland, uh, which had no, uh, you know, uh, avenues of employment or uh, uh, bad crops and all that, Similarly, like Irish, the Baloch have been uh, migrating all along history. And if you study like in Qatar or Bahrain or UAE, the armies, even Oman, the armies have been largely Baloch. Uh, there is a very large Baloch uh, diaspora and the expatriates working all over uh, 
the world, including Middle East, uh, uh, Europe, even America. You will find Baloch in the U.S. Marines. I met a Baloch uh, in 2002 who was serving in the U.S. Marines and was belong, he belonged to Mand Bolo, which is on the border. And I was surprised and he told me that large number of Baloch are even in the Russian army, even in the U.S. army, Oman army, a very large number. So these Baloch abroad, they are also uh, fully sympathizing with the Balochistan uh, ongoing war. And certainly uh, they are giving financial aid or moral aid or whatever. You know. So now the first thing which we have to understand is that the Balochistan insurgency is indigenous and not foreign inspired, as it is being labeled. And uh, yes, maybe India has an interest or maybe some other power has an interest. That is a separate thing. But certainly uh, the first point I want to make and the most important point is that the Balochistan insurgency or the war of succession or liberation, whatever you may like to call it. I'm not a political person. I am a dispassionate analyst. And as I see it, I have been very, very straight in describing it to you, and I stick to it, and this is my conviction. Sir? Yeah, I very much appreciate, uh, you know, not getting caught up too much in the nomenclature. To, you know, so many people want to get caught up in whether it's an insurgency or successionist movements. And for me, from when I'm looking into whether it's uh, the Gwadar area, where there are, you know, essentially Chinese colonies being built, and if I'm not mistaken, um, essentially a lot of the traffic to that has killed a lot of businesses along a northern road out there um, and forced a lot of people to kind of immigrate uh, to other areas, if I'm not mistaken, as well as uh, subjects, uh, the more recent thing, I believe, uh, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, the uh, Rico Deck um, gold mine, I believe, um, has become a hot topic as of late. Um, you know, a lot of these kinds of activities are, you know, really being seen, um, you know, as you know, selling out to foreign powers, in this case, more China and um, than others. And uh, so what are your takes on, say, the, the Gwadar uh, developing area there and how that has affected um, businesses and communities around the world? If I'm not mistaken, the boat makers of Gwadar were kind of uh, the backbone of that community for a long time before Chinese development started in the area. Uh, David and uh, Mr. Corrigan, uh, Tommy, First of all, I want to uh, give you the background sure. to this whole issue, which is which is very important. Sure. Now, if you if you study the history of uh, Pakistan, uh, basically the Pakistani core elite, which is of course you know based uh, in the Punjab and in the frontier, basically if you study them all along. This establishment has collaborated with the foreign powers. And uh, first of all, uh, since I am a sixth generation soldier, I want to give you an example that uh, when the British East India Company came, the various ethnicities, even in India, North India, even in South India, and later in Punjab and Frontier, all these ethnicities collaborated with the British East India Company. And as far as the Pakistani establishment is concerned, they especially collaborated because uh, the British East India Company 
was viewed as savior of the Muslims of Punjab and Muslims of the frontier, the Pashtuns, both. They regarded them as a benefactor. And then they very, very actively uh, collaborated with the British company during the rebellion of 1857-59. And that is how uh, the Pakistani military and the uh, Pashtuns and the Punjabi Muslims, they became the most uh, favorite ethnicity of the British. Of course, the British uh, East India Company was abolished in 1st November 1858. But the Pakistani establishment all along collaborated with foreign powers. And this was their strategy because uh, the main Muslim leader in Indian Pakistan, Sayyid Ahmed Khan, he was the biggest loyalist and he declared after the rebellion of 1858 in which he had collaborated with the British company. After the rebellion, he declared that the salvation of the Muslims of India lies in collaborating with the British and being good mercenaries. And that all along was a line. Now, if you study the Indo-Pak history, in 1939, the Indian Congress made a very stupid decision, stupid in the sense that because of that, India was divided. The Indian Congress made a decision not to collaborate with the British Empire in the war effort against the Axis powers. Whereas the Muslims of India and Pakistan under the Muslim League, which was a minority party, very, very Mickey Mouse puny party, they decided to collaborate with the British. And that is how India was partitioned and Pakistan was created. Just like the British partitioned, you know, Ireland and North Ireland or, you know, like a, the USA or Canada, something like that. So all along, the policy of the Muslim elite in India and Pakistan was to collaborate with some power. First, it was the British East India Company. Then it was the British Empire. And after Pakistan was created, the Pakistani establishment decided to collaborate with the Americans. So that started in 1954 with an agreement and continued till 1965. After 1965, the Pakistani establishment decided that they could not survive alone. So they decided to collaborate with both USSR and China. USSR was not acceptable to uh, the USA, so they financed uh, political movement and uh, the military dictator Ayub Khan was overthrown. But with China, America was okay. Finally, after the 1971 war, again, the Pakistani establishment collaborated with the Americans and this continued to 1989. Now, about 2000 or so, the Pakistani uh, establishment was a, you know, bastard child and they had no foreign uh, patrons or uh, benefactors. So they decided that the only salvation is China and that is how the Gawadar project was created by General Musharraf starting from 2001 to 2. Although the beginning had been made under Nawaz Sharif, but in 2002, uh, the Pakistani establishment desperately, with no choice, decided to collaborate with China. And that is how the Gawadar project started.
there was a lot of talk about gawadar but actually the major developments emerged after 9/11 because the pakistan establishment was afraid of the usa also in afghanistan so they decided that china is the best bet now over the passage of time you see if even i have a blood brother actual brother even my brother will fight with me over property over assets and would try to you know always let me down this is human tendency i am mm-hmm. not uh, yeah. saying that it is in pakistan only yeah so uh, so how can the pakistan establishment being uh, based in the north side of pakistan punjab and the frontier how can they allow the baloch any share in the pie it is very simple this is human nature uh, even look at the british you know the irish and the british you know or you know they were generally similar people generally but you know how how ireland was treated for 700 years how irish were crushed mm-hmm. so this is the human tendency i would compare let's say the english or the irish with the pakistani establishment and the baloch uh, this is a struggle over you know natural resources and over political power and uh, naturally gawadar has been badly affected the boat building has been you know al- almost destroyed now with the chinese tourists coming and fishing there without any license or anything so uh, gawadar is it you know i think ultimately the whole population of gawadar is going to be driven out of gawadar as as i am seeing it i last visited it in 2017 and uh, the people were very demoralized and certainly uh, you know uh, like you know uh, when america was colonized you know this is something like that you know when the america was colonized naturally the native americans Uh, you don't find them in new york now or you don't find them in yeah in uh, norfolk or boston it's it's, it's very natural yeah. it is something like that i'm being very very blunt but this is my this is my assessment or my opinion sure that's yes. what i appreciate about you is and and a subject for another time is we uh, very much seem to both enjoy mocking the american foreign policy establishment um for the materialistic alcoholics that they are and uh, i'm sure we can uh, have a good chat about that another time but uh that is, d- it, it definitely is favorite, that is a favorite pastime of this podcast with david <laughs> with david you're but, saying but yes um whether it's uh the, the guadar project and if i remember correctly chabahar was the more iranian interest and if i remember correctly part of balochistan kind of uh seeps into iran and so there is some iranian culture and influence there too how does uh the iranian influence and uh their perspective uh plans is we already heard you know we kind of understand it you know while it's not india supported that india has interest in the balochistan area just because of the cultural commonality going way back uh to the background as you were saying uh regarding iranians i would say that uh, during the shah's time the iranian government was very oppressive with the baloch and uh, again i would say that american you know foreign policy has been very myopic and very you know very uh, you know mediocre in the sense that when the iranian revolution came the iranian baloch expected that the usa would help them and you know support kind of insurgency in uh, iranian balochistan but usa took no interest because you know basically uh, 
you know, the USA does not have great statesmen. So they took no interest in them. They rebuffed the Iranian Baloch. And the Iranian mullahs very cleverly, although they are also oppressive with uh, Iranian Baloch, but they are more intelligent. So, you know, they started schemes like subsidizing, you know, foodstuff and sub subsidizing, you know, uh, fuel, lubricants. And this gave a great economic boost to the Iranian Baloch, who, you know, started uh, smuggling the subsidized uh, flour and, you know, all kinds of foodstuffs and fertilizer and the subsidized petrol to Pakistan. So they, you know, uh, Iranian Baluchistan generally became prosperous. Plus the Iranian state, you know, very cleverly, uh, you know, improved the infrastructure and uh, electricity and all that. And since the Iranian Baluch was not getting support from any foreign power or even the Baloch expatriates because the situation actually improved in Iranian Baluchistan as compared to Pakistani Baluchistan. So generally, Iranian Baloch, you know, uh, they were less anti-state and uh, there was no demographic fear also. Like, you know, in Pakistani Baluchistan and the Baloch part especially, there is a demographic fear that if Gawadar uh, becomes a big industrial city, naturally labor will come from uh, outside Baluchistan and within five or ten years, the Baloch would become a minority because the demography is very delicate in Balochistan. The Baloch population is very uh, small and uh, even if two or three million people or four million uh, people come to Gawadar, which is uh, quite likely when it you know, becomes an industrial city, the Baloch will become a minority and they will have no say in the political decision making or anything. And this point has been repeatedly uh, forwarded to the Pakistani government uh, by the Baloch leaders, like in 1969 when martial law was imposed and Pakistan's first general elections were held based on direct adult franchise. At that time, uh, Nawab Akbar Bukti, he was a friend of General Sharif who was commanding the military garrison in Quetta and my father was his staff officer. At that time, uh, Nawab Akbar Bukti conveyed to General Sharif that uh, if industry is established in Balochistan, uh, the workers will come from outside Balochistan and Baloch will become minority. So these fears were repeatedly con uh, conveyed to the establishment. And basically, Gawadar represents a tool of demographic change. The local opinion is that if Gawadar becomes an industrial city, which is planned, uh, within 10 to 15 years, the Baloch will become a minority as far as the provincial assembly is concerned, the legislature and all that. And they will be totally, you know, uh, you know, like the Red Indians. How many Red Indians you find in the U.S. Congress? Like the Red Indians of North America, they will become, you know, total, you know, like an endangered species or the aborigines of Australia like that, something like that. Here I would add that General Zia also, during the Afghan war, he deliberately, uh, you know, uh, changed the demography of Balochistan by settling a very large number of Afghans who were Pashtuns. And uh, this problem actually started in the Zia era, 
in the Balochistan because he brought the Pashtuns since he was supporting the insurgency and insurgency was basically Pashtun insurgency in Afghanistan as far as the Soviet Afghan war was concerned. So this problem started in Zia era in between 79 and 88 and later aggravated because the main fear in Balochistan is that uh, like uh, Chinese Sinkyan, where, you know, the non-Chinese population, non-Uyghur population is being brought, uh, the great fear in Balochistan is that if Gavadar fully develops, there will be a major change in demography and the Baloch will become minority in the next 10 to 15 years. So this is a very, very simple issue but, you know, uh, these people, instead of accommodating them, there is a political side also. Even, you see, even Britain accommodated the Irish and they gave them independence in 1922. Although they played, a you know, a dirty card, you know, North Ireland and all that, but that is a separate thing. But you see, the problem with the, most of the states, here I would say that the British were more intelligent as far as India was concerned, they realized that, you know, they could not hold on. So they started negotiations in 1940. In 1947, they gave independence to India, although they divided it. That was a parting kick of British by dividing India and, you know, almost 1 million, maybe 1.5 million Indians died killing each other. The British didn't kill them. But the British foresight was there and they decided early. The French were very stupid. And, you know, they got kicked out of Indochina. Then they got kicked out of Algeria. The Portuguese, Spanish, you know, were still fighting till 1975 in Africa. In this regard, the British were more intelligent. But the Pakistani establishment is also like the French, Portuguese, the Spanish. They are, you know, they are dumb, basically. They don't have that foresight. Otherwise, with some negotiation, with some understanding and accommodation, the Balochistan issue can be solved. But, you know, uh, uh, dealing it with the military option and crushing them and uh, trying to change the demography, uh, uh, this is naturally going to be resisted. And it is being resisted. And, you know, it is a long-term affair because the demography is rapidly changing. The Baloch, you know, the population uh, percentage is now rapidly increasing. Uh, so... Uh, Maybe 40 years earlier, they were a very small minority, but they, they have been growing and they have been going abroad and, you know, from abroad, remittances are coming. So prosperity is there, population is increasing. But of course, the fear is there that if Gavadar becomes a fully developed industrial city, uh, demography will change. So this is the basic issue. Sir. Yeah, thank you very much for that background, because there's so much that, you know, we just don't even get to see, you know, at least in the English speaking media, you know, we hear about, you know, just a, a terrorist attack here or there, or, you know, a dispute over, say, like, you know, the Rico Jack Goldmine, but uh, very little other than that really makes it into the English uh, speaking world. And it's just really interesting to see, at least when I first started paying attention to, you know, very close attention to Guadar around 2017, 2018, just seeing how it developed, how quickly it is picked up and developed since then compared to like Chabhar and the Iranians. And as you uh, say, the Iranians were a bit smarter in how to negotiate and how to uh, at least build infrastructure and build up their uh, 
populations and whether it's uh, the Pakistani establishment there, the British uh, regimes of uh, today or our foreign policy and uh, domestic policy leadership that don't really, they, they all want to use demographic change as a weapon and they don't really have that kind of sense of old of uh, negotiating and maintaining a balance of power. That seems to be a completely foreign concept in modern geopolitics. And so one of the things that I've noticed since the rapid uh, pace in Guadar development is that international communities, that at the very least, I wouldn't say we're supporting blows before, we're at least neutral. Uh, since around 2018, 2019, we've started to see a lot of people uh, from the international community start to uh, label this as, an, as a terrorist organization and uh, various groups as terrorist organizations. So what do you think um, has been the result of the international community um, essentially looking at this from a one-sided lens, so to speak. And and how do you see that acceleration since around 2018, 2019, from your perspective? As far as uh, I see uh, international community, uh, first of all, let me give you my brief about the international community, which is basically Western Europe and the Americas. Uh, basically, they have lost that... Uh, that uh, zest or maybe that uh, that basic uh, you know uh, statesmanship or maybe you call it resolution or you know they have you know the the west has degenerated into just money making and materialism and uh, there was some idealism if you study the spanish civil war there was idealism at that time if you even study the Second World War, there was idealism. But uh, I would say the Iraq War was the culmination of idealism when uh, Iraq was attacked, you know, without any uh, any ethics, uh, yeah. in total violation of international law. Yeah. That was the culminating point, you know, and you know, total decline from that time. And uh, even if you study Afghanistan, the more than fifty percent of Afghans wanted that. The Americans should stay there or have some kind of, you know, some kind of presence there or some safeguards, maybe some nuclear weapons to, you know, uh, to deter the Taliban, but, you know, shamelessly abandoned and, you know, they went away. So as far as Balochistan is concerned, again, uh, the U.S. policymakers all along, I was there in Afghanistan when the U.S. were there between 2002 and 2020, I was almost there for eight years, continuously, and then, you know, off and on, coming back and going back. The USA or NATO or anybody, they took no interest in Balochistan or what the Baloch were doing. Uh, there is a lot of propaganda that Indians were actively involved, but I would say that Indians also are very, very mediocre and, you know, they are the same, you know, people, mediocre people like uh, the Pakistani establishment. No, not much difference, you know. Maybe religion is different, but equally me mediocre and pathetic. Indians also, you know, lukewarm support. Maybe, you know, some, they gave them some uh, firecrackers or something. But uh, foreign communities was not serious. But mm -hmm. over the passage of time, the, uh, the local population, uh, now I want to give you a very clear distinction. In earlier insurgencies in the Balochistan, the northern side of the Baloch population was active, where the Sardars, the tribal chiefs, they were leading the insurgency. Now, in this particular insurgency, starting from 2002, the southern Baloch population, 
is leading and spearheading this insurgency. And uh, a very important point to remember regarding southern Balochistan, this, uh, the southern Baloch population, is that the tribal chiefs are not there in southern uh, Balochistan. It is a more democratic society. And mm-hmm. from southern Balochistan, uh, Makran and, you know, Kharan and even uh, Panjgur, the, uh, the southern Balochistan, where the insurgency is uh, very, very active. From here, mostly people have gone abroad. And especially regarding Gawadar, and Gawadar is part of Makran district, now known as Kesh Division. If you study, at one time, almost 75% of Oman army was from Gawadar and Turbat district. And, and Panjgur and Kharan. So even now, Oman has got a very large Baloch population. So this diaspora in uh, Baloch in Qatar and Bahrain and UAE, they are maybe aiding uh, the Baloch. Plus, you know, there is the drug mafia. There is a Baloch drug mafia also. Some of them, most of them are collaborators of the establishment, uh, but some of them are supporting the insurgents. And I would say that these insurgents, they don't have any foreign support as such. Uh, all along, I would say, if you study the insurgencies in Balochistan, the first insurgency started in 1948. The second insurgency started in 1958 and continued to 1969. The third insurgency started in 1973 and continued to 1976. And this fourth insurgency, this started in 2002 as a direct reaction of Gavada and is continuing for almost 20 years. I would say that in all these four insurgencies, no foreign power supported the Baloch insurgents. You see, this is a very important point to remember. The Vietnamese or the Afghans, you know, about whom so much, you know, there is so much talk, you know, their bravery and martial spirit and all nonsense, you know. Vietnamese and Afghans were supported by the biggest, the strongest powers in the world. The Chinese initially, and then, uh, you know, Vietnam was pushed by China, but supported by USSR. At that time, a great power. The Afghan war, you know, all along was uh, the Soviet-Afghan war. The Americans were supporting the whole world, NATO, and even China and everybody, even Japan was sending something. So these Baloch, they have not got any foreign support. There is a lot of propaganda that maybe the U.S. is doing it or, you know, the Indians are doing it. But as far as I see, honestly, these, uh, this insurgency is not foreign supported. It is indigenous. It is a very important point to remember. But you see, the USA, uh, a great power, has lost all strategic balance. They abandoned the Uyghurs. They abandoned the Afghans. You see, Afghan, the USA was there in Afghanistan for 20 years. And a sizable population wanted them to stay. But what happened, you know, how, you know, the double game played by USA and this uh, Ashraf Ghani between 2014 and 2019, a very important development took place in Afghanistan that Ashraf Ghani, on the US instructions, he dismissed 98% of Afghan officers trained by the USSR and veterans of various wars. So, between 2014 and 19, the Afghan army, national army, was stripped of all leadership. Similar purge was carried out by Ashraf Ghani in five years in Afghan intelligence. 
where all the Soviet trained and the best officers were removed and similar purge was carried out in police where the best trained, you know, the Sarangoy, the USSR trained officers who had done courses in Riga for five years were removed. So why Afghanistan collapsed all of this, you know, in, a, in such a unexpected manner? It was a U.S. design. They wanted Afghanistan to collapse, how they were dished, you know. Similarly, you see the Yogars and you see the Baloch and you see any minority, how the Kurds were dished, you know. You see, when the Americans went to Iraq in 2003, they could have easily created a Kurd state. But dilly-dallying, uh, myopicness, uh, shallowness, low intellect, you know, plus, you know, a lack of resolution. Basically, the, the greatest power in the world, so-called, the USA, they lack the strategic resolution to help anybody. You know. They can't even help themselves. You know. uh, two of my sons are in the USA. Indeed. And then they see the they see the uh, veterans, you know, eating from the garbage dumps. Yeah. And you know, you know, uh, or shot in the face in the, the capital, like Ashley yeah. Babbitt. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. Twenty-two of them committing so suicide a day. It's terrible. It's terrible. And the the way my sons see, it, they often tell me, you know, and they are always sometimes feeding the veterans and you know asking them and giving them some aspirin or maybe some medicine, because you know in, in USA even a medicine. You, to get a medicine, you know, you have to pay through your nose and, you know, go to a doctor and get a prescription and all, you know, sort of, it's a big mafia, you know. Yeah. So in this scenario, Balochistan or the Baloch insurgents, to say that they are getting any foreign aid or, you know, any sponsorship is total nonsense. Because the greatest power in the world, the USA, they lack the moral courage or strategic resolution to help anybody, even the US citizens, you know. So this is nonsense. And I would again uh, reiterate, that whatever is happening in Balochistan, good or bad, whatever you call it, it is purely indigenous. No Indian uh, hands. Maybe Indians are taking interest, but Indians are also hopeless like Pakistanis, you know, same race, you know. There, there is not much difference between them. If you look at their faces, you know, there is not much difference. Yes, religion is a difference, but religion, you know, religion cannot override the race. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you will agree. So uh, please continue. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that you mentioned there, and I, I completely agree, because when you use demographic change as a weapon, um, you're all you're going to do is you're going to unite everyone within the tribal community against the the outsider there. And much the same thing is happening here in the United States. Anyone that speaks out against the neoliberal regime as a current, well, you're being supported by Putin. You're being supported by the Russians. You know, you can't be a populist American who is against the neoliberal regime. So it's very much the same kind of game uh, that we see being played here um, where it's just you know uh, all these rumors and disinformation about foreign support but one of the things that you mentioned was the drug mafia of uh, Balochistan and if I'm not mistaken from my studies of Mozambique I believe a lot of uh, uh, heroin was coming out of Guadar, out of Guadar area going down the, uh, the coast of Africa uh, mostly to Mozambique where it would be moved over to South Africa and then uh, basically moved to Western Europe from there now, a lot of these kinds of heroin drug mafias lately, one of the things we've seen as Chinese uh, influence develops, like traditional black tar heroin from China, uh, from Afghanistan, tends to lose out to fentanyl and synthetics from China as their influence grows. And that tends to also create a destabilizing drug war within uh, a certain area. Are we seeing these kinds of similar uh, things play out in Balochistan at the moment? You see... Uh 
my first uh, stint of uh, service was uh, in 1979. For a very short time, uh, there was an agency known as Narcotic Control Board. Uh, I had a very short stint of service there. And uh, from 1979, I saw the drug mafia very closely. And then, you know, having extensive contacts in Balochistan and Afghanistan, I saw the drug mafia very, very closely. Now, regarding the drug mafia, as you know that uh, the heroin basically started in the Vietnam War when the, uh, the Golden Triangle, you know, was financed by the CIA and, you know, nobody knew how to make heroin in Vietnam, you know. This was taught to them, you know, by the CIA and the operatives. Because during the Vietnam War, for various black operations and so many, you know, dirty tricks brigade, you know, they had to finance, you know, all those things. So, you know, the golden triangle was created and, you know, these uh, poor Vietnamese and uh, Burmese and uh, Chin and Karen and so many tribes, they were taught how to make heroin. They had no idea what was heroin. So similarly, in the Soviet-Afghan war, you know, the golden crescent was created in, in Balochistan and Afghanistan. And Afghans who had no idea about heroin, they were taught how to, you know, make heroin. The chemical, of course, you know, uh, the anhydride, you know, this uh, chemical used to make heroin uh, is imported mostly from China or from Turkey or India. That is also very expensive, 25,000 rupees per, you know, per liter or 30,000, which is a very huge amount. So basically, uh, first of all, heroin or morphia paste has to be supported by a state. Now, the situation in Balochistan is that the major uh, drug mafia, of course, have state support. Like, you know, I, I worked in Helmand in Afghanistan during the US-Afghan war, and I saw closely how between 2006 and 2014-15, uh, uh, the uh, new drug mafia was created by the US government, and uh, officially the the profits were being sent to the U.S. Treasury, but a lot of corruption because basically the morphia paste in Helman was being sold to the pharmaceutical companies. So there was a state angle. In Balochistan, also in Pakistan, there is a state angle. A very large part of uh, drug mafia being supported by the state uh, establishment for their own reasons, you know, like the CIA was doing, you know, black ops and all that. Similarly, a very large part of drug mafia is being supported by the Iranian state because Gavadar and, you know, there is a place, Gavatar. One is Gavadar from Deep and one is Gavatar, G-W-A-T-A-R, which is just uh, next to the border. A very large amount of morphia paste is going from uh, Gavadar to Gavatar. And there it is being, uh, you know, switched over into Iranian launches. And generally, the impression is uh, that the Iranian launches are clean, which is a total nonsense. So, uh, there is everybody involved in the drug trade. And then there is a small drug mafia, the local drug mafia. Uh, naturally, they don't have the Pakistani state patronage and all that, and they are being harassed and all that. Major part of drug lords, whether Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iran or UAE, enjoy state support. This is very, very clear thing. The minor part of drug mafia, maybe they don't. And uh, when I visited Gavadar in 2017, I was very alarmed to see that uh, some uh, drug mafia enjoying the establishment's patronage 
they were you know very very actively selling meth which is a very dangerous drug and you know which is very bad for the you know for the human health and you know destroys a person so meth was also being sold and the local baloj were of the opinion uh, various my sources which i who I interviewed were of the opinion that uh, you know uh, this is being sold deliberately to destroy the young generation and all that and at that time uh, i had a very small contract with the uh, maritime security agency which is a uh, anti smuggling branch of the pakistan navy and they wanted my help regarding some uh, anti narcotic uh, operations and they invited me and uh, mr wajid choudhry who was chief of the naval intelligence at that time uh, he invited me to gawadar but after 7 days he became hands up and he said that sir we cannot continue this operation and thank you very much for your service and naturally my agreement with him was that uh, i don't want to be paid anything i just give me some mess accommodation and you no know, lodging and all that and so i was told after 7 days that uh, sir uh, the situation is very hot and uh, the drug mafia and uh, gawadar and the urbat area uh, they are you know they have reported your presence to the uh, the overlords i don't want to say anything more so you please if you go thank you very much so this was the situation the uh, drug trade is totally dominated by the establishment whether it is helmand the us establishment and the british if you if you study you have written a lot on the campaign and all that so afghanistan it was the us and british and in in pakistan naturally the pakistan establishment in iran it is the iranian establishment if you study the the these hubara started you know shooting arab princes who were coming to pakistan their aircrafts they are not checked by custom nobody can check them and they bring 730s and boeings and they can fill it with anything and take it to saudi arabia the princes mm-hmm. so uh, it's a very dangerous thing and i would also narrate that my regimental officer uh, brigadier adnan azim who sadly died of uh, heart failure about 15 or 20 days ago he personally told me that he was the head of the anti narcotic force in balochistan and anti narcotic force was initially a us financed project he said that our funds have been totally uh, reduced and we are impotent and he told me this uh, pakistani director of anf anti narcotic force pakistan he personally told me he said that uh, i wanted to check the aircrafts of the saudis and ue and qatari and all the gulf princes hunting the you know hubara bastard you know i wanted to check the aircraft take them through customs but i was warned that you would stay away from the aircrafts so no aircraft of any arab prince in balochistan is checked i'm just giving you an example the level of people who are involved naturally in the borfia pace trafficking or even in the uh, any interborder trafficking any person without state patronage just cannot survive you know so, uh, there is a very big state patronage i would say even us british the pakistani iranian uae saudi arabia you name it and now of course chinese are there also uh, i have not visited gawadar in the last uh, four years but naturally 
uh, everybody has got a finger in the pie. Sir. It seems very similar to situations we've seen here in the States. For example, uh, I, I used to live very close to uh, Venice Airport here in Florida, which is where the 9-11 hijackers learned how to fly and everything. And it's been a very open secret for a long time that there is uh, foreign royalty that are given diplomatic passports, and they've essentially been running heroin and other kinds of drugs out of that airport, none of the aircraft being checked or anything, for a very long time. And that all goes back to essentially Knights of Malta and going back to the Golden Triangle as that was set up. And if anyone attempts to look into it, they will reach a very similar conclusion. Um, it just, you know, at a certain point, no one's going to touch it. Um, and that seems to be a running theme throughout most of these, you know, uh, drug mafias. As uh, the old saying kind of uh, reigns true, that if there's organized crime of any significant level, it is state-sponsored in some way. Um, and that really seems to uh, be true. How do you see as China's synthetic heroines and, and more fentanyl-based products, uh, how do you see that affecting uh, the power establishment that does have interest in Helmond, uh, obviously? Uh, if fentanyl starts to uh, win out as it does here uh, in the States and whatnot, is that going to affect people uh, lower down in the chain uh, who are dependent on Helmond? Pie, uh, as opposed to the establishment regimes that are more uh, in bed with China at the moment. You see, the thing is that uh, China can uh, strategically uh, manipulate the manufacturing of morphia paste, as you know, heroin is called diamorphia, mm -hmm. because uh, the major chemical used uh, in this uh, heroin labs is the anhydride and China is a very major uh, producer of anhydride. China, India, and Turkey. Three countries are very major producers, and China is the biggest producer in the world of anhydride. So China can definitely influence the drug mafia by supply of anhydride. Because anhydride is very difficult to transport. Presently, it is coming mostly from Turkey, by Iran, or uh, by sea, or it is coming from uh, India, uh, by sea, or by the land route, but uh, naturally China can, of course, manipulate the drug mafia and, you know, for their own political ends, they can, you know, sort of, you know, uh, they can really influence. As far as Helmand is concerned, Helmand is mostly uh, mostly the, the uh, base production area, but the uh, laboratories, you know, uh, are mostly on the border, Afghan-Pakistan border, or maybe... Uh, on the Afghan-Iran border. Balochistan is basically used for transporting because they don't have their own, uh, you know, hash. They have a very low-quality hash in uh, in Kalat. Uh, I, I visited Kalat in 2018, and uh, I met some of the big people involved in that. And uh, the, the quality in Balochistan is very low uh, of the hashish and various drugs, you know, they have low quality. The prime production area is Helmand and then uh, Badakhshan and Takhar in north. So basically Helmand is the production area and laboratories, you can say, are on the border. And, and now I have heard that some laboratories are, you know, uh, very, very operational on the iran Balochistan border. But this needs to be confirmed. Uh, I would still say that uh, almost uh, 
75% of the laboratories or on the uh, Afghan, uh, Pakistan and Afghan, uh, Iran, as well as the Afghan Central Asian border. Balochistan basically used for transportation, which is the most important thing. Because more than uh, 65 to 70% of the morphia paste, which is diamorphia or heroin, as you call it, is transported from Balochistan, Pakistani Balochistan. Iranian Balochistan is more strict, and I would say that on the Iranian side, uh, there is a state monopoly. As, as far as their switching is concerned from Gawadar to Gawadar on the launches, because as you know that the launches with the Iranian flags, they are normally not checked. And as you know that, uh, when, again, going back to history, you know, it is so interconnected. Going back to history, if you know, in 1979, when the revolution took place in Iran, basically the core drug mafia was Iranian. So that core drug mafia went to UAE and Dubai and Qatar and Bahrain. So if you study uh, UAE properly, it's even Saudi Arabia. The yeah, elite, if I'm not mistaken, the UAE is the producer of the DAOs that are often used to move the heroin yeah, down to Africa. Definitely. Now, if you study UAE and Saudi Arabia carefully, the moneyed people, the uh, the moneyed establishment is Iranian. Like in UAE, you have this Demak group and uh, Fikri and Sobadi. In Saudi Arabia, you have Galadari, who is also Iranian. So the drug mafia simply put 79 it went to UAE. Now it is based in UAE. And the as far as the production and transportation is concerned, that is Afghanistan and Pakistan. Iran, uh, you know, I would say the transportation is more difficult because Iranians have really struck down. But Iranians also have a problem because I have seen um, that uh, I would say almost 50% of women in Iran uh, are ad addicted to some kind of drug, you know. Maybe opium. Opium is less dangerous, maybe hashish or uh, heroin. So, uh, Iranian government has, you know, really crushed the drug mafia, but again, they have failed. And if you study the some of the Iranian films, even made under the mullahs, they have admitted in those films that it is impossible to crush the drug mafia. So, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And uh, please. Well, thank you very much uh, for, you pretty much answered all the questions I've been wondering about for a long time now as I've been looking at this, and we don't want to keep you up too late. Is there anything else uh, that's happening geopolitically that you uh, you wish that uh, uh, we in the English-speaking world could see more of? Because uh, we don't get a, a very large uh, lens into what's going on in your area right now. You see, a major geopolitical change is taking place in the sense that the Russians and the whole world studied the NATO and the U.S. and the uh, British in Afghanistan, and, and they they realized that they are totally useless. And lastly, uh, I want to be very, very straight. And in 2006, I made friends with a U.S. Uh, diplomat. Uh, he was a second secretary. His name was Doug Scherer. He was in the U.S. embassy. Actually, he was there. I used to meet him frequently and a uh, lot of discussions and a lot of, you know, uh, I used to give him various ideas about various things and he used to take very uh, you know, keen interest. And you know, in the end, how he summed up everything, he said that my superiors in the State Department and in, the, in Washington, D.C. are wet pussies hiding behind emails, you know. <laughs> this is how he summed up. Uh, this is how he summed up the U.S. establishment, you know. So don't uh, expect anything from wet pussies. I, I, would, I would thing. go 
one step further, and uh, there's a lot of speculation <laughs> that at least two-thirds of the diplomatic corps and some of the intelligence community these days are essentially on psychotropic drugs um, and benzos, uh, benzoamphetamines, uh, benzos and mixing that with alcohol because they can't smoke or you know, they're materialists for the most part. So as soon as they stop working, they start drinking and then they take benzos for distress and um, they tend to nuke their mind. Uh, one, yeah, a good example of this is the Brookings Institution here. When uh, the Trump came into the presidency and many of the neoliberal establishment uh, essentially uh, went out of power, so to speak, they went to Brookings Institution and other think tanks where they were essentially on a state-sponsored vacation and They've drank themselves to death in that time, and that's why now that they've come back into power, not that they were very bright before, but they're even more degraded now, as we see. I, I totally agree, but again, I want to repeat that the U.S. and NATO performance in Afghanistan you know, has encouraged Russia and has encouraged the anti-U.S. forces to embark on you know adventures like Ukraine and everything. This is a dangerous trend. You see, Putin has got valid grounds to go into Ukraine. That is separate. But they studied the U.S. Army and the British Army and NATO in Afghanistan. And, you know, especially the the only people who fought were, were the, you know, Americans. They suffered over 2,400 casualties, fatal casualties in actual fighting. Rest, you can say British also did something, but, you know, Mickey Mouse, 500 or 600 maybe. But the thing is that the whole world observed how pathetically NATO behaved. NATO, I mean Western Europe. So uh, this is a dangerous geopolitical trend, you know. The Ukraine war itself is, you know, a very dangerous trend, you know. People are not understanding. Mm -hmm. And the Americans and the NATO are trying to fight the war on Twitter or on Facebook or on LinkedIn, maybe, by, by posting. <laughs> but but it's, it's a dangerous thing. Because you can't win wars on war on Twitter or on social media. You will agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. agree. But yeah. uh, they they seem to have to learn that lesson the hard way, as they call every populist that disagrees with them in the United States Nazis. Meanwhile, they're supporting the they're yeah, tripping awesome. over themselves to uh, throw weapons to actual Nazis in Western Ukraine and. Uh, and questioning Putin's, uh, I, they're saying that he's insane. And it's like, we can go back to the Bucharest summit of April in 2008, where he laid out uh, his what policy is, yeah. for if NATO expands again, and nothing has changed about Putin. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. He's, Putin, Putin has become a hero as far as the uh, Latin America and Afro-Asia. Af Even in America, people like him. You know, I've I, I met many Americans who love, who love Putin. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's like I don't want to love Putin, but you know, compared to what we have for our leadership, it's hard not to like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And then you have, yeah, everyone in the United States thinks that this is the equivalent of storming the beaches on Normandy by posting a picture that says, <laughs> I stand with Ukraine. Or you, got, you have a bunch of guys that have bigger tits than women painting their fingernails with the blue and the yellow. And I don't know if you guys have seen that picture, but there's one guy going, hey, Putin, and he painted um, his fingernails. And I was just like, you know um, what? We just we deserve. We deserve nuclear Tommy, annihilation, David. Tommy, the situation has gotten even worse than that. There, one of the Reddit volunteers that went over there uh, violated OPSEC and posted a picture that basically let the Russians know that the Ukrainians were storing a lot of troops in various abandoned, abandoned schools. schools. got them all And killed. within, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I saw that. It's uh, So if, if the American regime reaches out to help you, turn them down because they're not going to help you even if they want to. <laughs> As Henry Kissinger said, it's dangerous to be our, our ally. It's lethal to be, or sorry, it's dangerous to be our enemy. It's lethal to be our ally. So uh, definitely. 
even Kissinger's right. You know, even a broken clock's right twice a day. But um, Aga, I would love to have you back on, man. And we can absolutely keep talking, but I know that it's 1 a.m. your time. Uh, I don't want to keep you up, but um, okay, I'd love to do another episode with you and David sometime, man. So thank you very much for the uh, interest and the uh, the podcast and everything. And uh, I don't know if uh, this podcast will have any impact or not, but uh, I have tried to give you my uh, opinion, uh, very, very frank opinion as far as I've seen things. Well, yeah, uh, thank you very much because we appreciate anyone that wants to cut through uh, the euphemisms that yeah. the politically correct uh, prefer to use and just talk about the subject uh, bluntly. And as Tommy said, we would love to have you back and yeah. uh, talk about this uh, in the future because you, you know, I, of course, I read what you post on Academia. Tommy doesn't have an account there yet, but uh, you have very colorful opinions about uh, the Western establishment, and uh, I feel like we have some very fun uh, discussions in the future. <laughs> yeah, we- definitely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Aga, we've uh, there's another guy that's been on here a couple times who I simply know as T, who's uh, okay. the Israeli special forces. He's in Syria. Yeah. And he know I don't know what he looks like. He wears a mask when he does the podcast, but he comes on and okay. uh, I love it. He tells us his opinions on everything and, you know, kind of how fucked up the world is. But uh, yeah, it's another one where it's it's a guy halfway around the world that's coming on and just laying it down. And uh, I genuinely appreciate it. I think it's it's a good break from from my own uh, myopic and as David said, English speaking centered universe. Um, yeah, no, I genuinely mean that. I would love to have you. Obviously, you you have David and I's contact info now, so let's not be strangers, especially with everything going on in Ukraine. Um, I would absolutely love to have you on again, man. You're you're a wildly fascinating individual, and uh, I can only imagine it's uh, David's a kid in a candy shop talking to you. So uh, we'll have to do it again. Much grateful and uh, have a nice day and God bless you and uh, good night. God bless you as well. God bless you. Good night, my friend. God bless. David, thank you. Aga, David, I will send you the episode when it's uploaded, but I got to get preparing for the next episode. Aga, God bless you, sir. David, I'll talk to you later. Peace, everybody. Recording stopped. Thank you. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye.